Okay. Well, let me, um, I'll just, I'll go without without the picture here. Um, I turned 50 this week. Wait. Join join the 10 of you, right, who are over 50? It was kind of a momentous week for me, I guess. Um, really caused me to, to think and, and reflect upon, uh, upon my, my life. Um, I came home Tuesday uh, to this uh, splattering of an, an array of, uh, you can just imagine a, a picture up there of, uh, of a bunch of Mountain Dew cans. Now, I am a, a Mountain Dewer connoisseur. Now, I'm not sure some of you who are new don't, don't realize this, but, but I am, and um, this is this is Mountain Dew, right? And I affectionately refer to it as what? Sugar. Um, <clears throat> I'm a connoisseur, remember? I refer to this as this is just this is green, okay? And this one is what? This is red. It's called cold red, but it's it's red. And this is white, okay? Now the reason I don't have my blue and my orange up here is because I'm out. So, I, so I'm out. I was going to grab some, but I, I don't have any. So they are, uh, they are done. And I came home, and there was this big, on Tuesday, it was my birthday, and there's this big uh, assortment of, of uh, Mountain Dew cans. And uh, in those cans, it spelled out the number 50. Like if I show you on the picture, you'd, you'd see it. it. It spelled out the number 50. And uh, David was quick to point out um, that it, it has 50 cans in it. It was five cans high and 10 cans across, and uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a good time. Um, turning 50, it, it cost, I, I wrote something on my blog. I don't write my blog a lot, but I did. You can go to stevebrandon.com. It's easy enough to remember to, to see the thing I wrote about just turning 50. And, and the thing that struck me was I'm, in all likelihood, I'm more than halfway done with my life. And it just caused a, a reflection upon my own life, thinking about Psalm 90. Moses begins, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then he goes, he says that man's life, if it's about 70 years, if he's due strength, he's got 80. Um, but here you're 50, and so you're kind of over that hill. And maybe today, maybe we'll grow a little bit longer. But he says in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach me to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And uh, so I... I kind of had some thoughts about that. Put that out there. But I got an got a email or a Facebook message from a high school friend of mine. It's literally been decades since we have talked together. And he said this, Steve, I enjoy reading your blog posts when I see them on Facebook, the most recent one being about turning 50. Um, he said, I'm not religious, but I appreciate the way that you talk about universal issues in a way that connects to people. Best wishes for you and your family. Keep up the good work. He's not a Christian. I just put something out there. It's not just a link to other things, but something that was and is uh, part of my own, my own self. And I just encourage you just to be talking about God in whatever circumstances you have and just see what, what, what fits. And you'll find even this secular guy, he's, he's brilliant. He uh, taught at UCLA as a professor, and he's now teaching in Hong Kong in Chinese. I mean, the guy's, the guy's brilliant. But he's, he's not a Christian. But it's getting him to think, getting him to think about uh, life and eternal things as well. Well, this morning, uh, we're not going to focus on being 50, okay? We're going to focus upon the Passion Week is what we're focusing upon. We're going to focus upon 
the week leading up to the, the death of Jesus. Now, it's interesting, when you, when you survey the Gospels, um, when, you, when you just go over them, one of the things you, you realize is that, uh, here we go, maybe, maybe we'll get this here. Maybe we'll connect. So We'll just go without today, it's fine. Um, one of the things you realize when you look at the Gospels is that only three chapters talk about the birth of Christ. And only ten verses tell us anything about his childhood. And zero verses talk about from his childhood up to the time in which he is 30 years old. So you, you think about the, uh, the life of, of Christ. We know almost next to nothing. Uh, maybe just, just, just 4% of all the gospel accounts is dedicated to his birth to the time that he is uh, 30 years old. So there's my, there are my cans. The punch has been lost, so anyway, here we go. <laughs> but there, there are the 50 cans. You can see them. Do you see the 50? I was going to have the kids try to figure out what's so special about that five by... So here's the deal. Okay, I just remember now. I don't know who did this. Do I know now? I know now. All right, but you don't know. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You're turning red. <laughs> Nathan. So um, we were trying to figure I didn't ever suspect you. <laughs> Thanks, Laura. Um, but just it demonstrates love. I would encourage all of us to be about this. Figure out things in people's lives and just get in there and show love and grace and affection in those sort of ways. Um, I asked a few people and didn't know who it was. So, so Sam blew it. But anyway, we're talking about the Passion Week so we know next to nothing, only 4% of all the Gospels from the birth till his ministry at age 30. And so that's, um, that's from the rest of his ministry. It's really interesting is when you come and look at the final week, they were talking more than 33% of all the chapters in the, in the Gospels talk about his, his Passion Week, sometimes called his, his Holy Week, sometimes called just, just the end. So what, what that means is that you've got all these Gospel accounts, a third of them, The third of the content focuses upon that last third of his life. And so one of the things that teaches you is is that the Gospels merely aren't just a a chronicle listing of everything happening to his life. Like any good biographer, the Gospels are really focusing their hearts and attention upon getting a message across. And, And they're getting a message across about the things that are most important. What's most important about the life of Jesus? Actually, his death. Because his death that paid for our sin... And what's leading up to his death, so we can understand his death, is that last week. But, but even more than just the volume of the gospel accounts, in the gospels, Jesus himself points to that going up to Jerusalem as the most important thing in his life. It's like the apex, the climax of his life. In Luke nine fifty one, he says this, or Luke says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. It was as if he had a a resolute charge and a a resolute mind that says, that's where I have to go. It was a driven passion of his own heart. That was the goal where he had to go. And not only was it just that one statement right in the middle of Luke. In fact, even towards early on, you get the sense that Jerusalem is his goal. Several times, even in the ministry, a turning point in his ministry, about halfway through his ministry, as when Peter revealed and said, you are the Christ, is at that point that several times and he says, yes, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to rise again. Listen to this, Mark 8, 31. 
immediately after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Clearly saying this, halfway through his ministry, it's about Jerusalem, it's about my death. One chapter later, Mark 9, 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Just the whole plan there about him going up and going to be killed, dead, and going to rise again. One chapter later, in Mark 10, 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Why were they amazed? Why were they afraid? Well, they're amazed because he's out in front going to his death. They were afraid because they knew he was going to die. And yet Jesus boldly taking this on and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. He said, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jerusalem's where he set his heart. He set his face. It, it is the focus of the gospel writers. It is the focus of Jesus. He knew that he was going to go. He knew he was going to die. And he knew he was going to die for our sins. Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many It's no accident that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John focus their attention upon the events surrounding the crucifixion, those before leading up to it and those afterwards, the resurrection, because that is our hope as believers in Christ, that our hope lies in the fact that Christ came to give his life as a ransom for our sins, to pay the redemption price, to make us right with God so we can spend eternity with him because of what Christ has done 2,000 years ago on our behalf, not because of what we do to merit forgiveness of any way. Such is the importance of the, of the last week of his life on earth. And for that reason, I had the broad Christian church has taken time each year to focus their attention upon that final week of Jesus. And so crucial is this week that each of the different days have different names for them. So like today is Sunday, often known as Palm Sunday. We know, know Sunday. Um, I think we probably know Friday. Friday is called Good Friday, right? We know Sunday, next Sunday is, is what? Easter or Resurrection Sunday. Uh, what about Saturday? Holy Saturday is what it's called. I mean, we don't have any accounts of what happened that day. Jesus was in the tomb, but it was it's kind of Holy Saturday. What about Thursday? Monday, Thursday, which means mon, a, a commandment. It's the commandment. It's the day that Jesus gave that commandment to love one another. Uh, what about Wednesday. I'd never heard of this before until this week. Some have called it Spy Wednesday. It's a really strange, yucky name, but it speaks about that's when Judas made the deal to spy out, to infiltrate, to betray Jesus. But those are names given to the Holy Week. Sometimes it is called the Holy Week, a special week of the year. Sometimes called Passion Week. I like Passion Week because that talks about the suffering. Passion means it means suffering. And this morning we're going to be looking at Passion Week. From the Gospel of Matthew. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to take your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 21. And uh, 
We're going to be looking there. It's page 826 in your pew Bibles, if you didn't bring a Bible today. And um, during this week, I've got a little challenge uh, for you. Uh, Just I'm thinking about uh, um, Passion Week. And, you know, sometimes for for Advent and leading up to Christmas, we do some things, encourage you to do some things with your families. I'm going to encourage you this week to kind of try to get involved in the Passion Week. And just read um, one chapter of Matthew each week. So I put a schedule up here. Really easy, right? Check out how good this lands. Right? Today's Sunday, and we read Matthew 21. And then Monday is Matthew 22. And Tuesday is... And, and by the time we get to the resurrection in Matthew 28, that is Sunday. And, and even what is, what is so perfect about that, what's wonderful about that, is that is that we're going to come back here on Friday for Good Friday service at 6.30. 6.30 to 7.30 be a short service. But we're going to focus on Matthew 26 and 27, just what we're reading Friday and Saturday. Um, so it's, so it's, it's really easy. And it, my challenge for you is to do this as a family. Okay, It's not, not, not individual reading. And so this challenge is going to you fathers. At, at Rock Valley Bible Church, we've pushed for a long time and continue will family worship, believing that you fathers will have more impact on your children than any school Sunday school program will. And so it's important for you to gather your family for worship. And here's an easy way to do it. Is, uh, every family's different, but dads, be thinking about what would be a good time where we can all get together. Maybe that's at breakfast before you go to work. Maybe that's at dinner. Maybe that's just right before bed. You gather everybody in one bedroom and just, just read it. Just encourage you to find a time, confirm it with your wife, summon everybody, give everybody 15 minutes notice, say, hey guys, we're going to be doing this, a family, and uh, at that point in time, get your Bible together and just read through a chapter. Dads, maybe offer up a short prayer, you can do it in less than 10 minutes, but that act of gathering together and just would encourage you to do that. And personally, fathers, I think this should be a regular practice of all of you. Just gathering your family for family worship. And if you haven't been doing that for a while, I'd encourage you to come back to that. That's the thing. It's not the thing. That's a huge thing that's going to make a difference in the lives of your children as you get to teach them and instruct them. If you've fallen out of that habit, start again. Kickstart it. I know for us, as our kids have gotten older, it's gotten more and more difficult as they're, they're gone. But with some regularity, a couple times a week, we have been doing that and just encourage you to do that. So let, let me just pray just for our week before we jump in. Father, I would pray that, that the fathers here might take that challenge. God, how perfect it is. Eight chapters. We start this Sunday, finish on Easter Sunday with Matthew 28 that deals with the resurrection. God, how, how perfect it is. And would pray, God, that the fathers here would take that mantle to show spiritual leadership in the family and, and seek with grace and with kindness and gentleness to lead families just around your word um, together, just out loud thinking through all this all-important week in the life of Jesus. We begin to celebrate today. We begin to think upon, reflect upon today with Palm Sunday. So may that, in some families, in some cases, be the first time, God, that any families meet together and pray together over your, your word. And for others, I pray it might bring them back to a practice maybe that they have neglected for a while. Um, and for those who are regular, God, may it just fit into the warp and woof of what they're doing. So help us, oh God, we pray. I pray also you'd help, um, help us open our eyes. Help us to see, God, just your, your word in all its glory. Um, God, to read it and understand it and embrace it and, and, and live again. Live afresh 
in this Passion Week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my message this morning is entitled Passion Week, colon, Sunday through Thursday. And um, we're looking at the five chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 21, and we're going to go through 25. That's, that's five chapters. Just um, Normally, at Rock Valley Bible Church, we take a, a verse, or we take a part of a verse, or we take a paragraph, and just open it up and explain it, and apply it, and press it, and preach it. Sometimes we take a chapter, so in the case of the Psalms, or maybe some of the Old Testament, or some narrative and stuff like that. Well, today we're taking five chapters. And you know what that means? That means we can't even read the whole passage. It would take 20 to 25 minutes to read the whole passage, so we're not. Um, but my aim, my aim is this, is I, is I just want to walk through these five chapters together to take us from Sunday until Thursday. So you just might have an, an overview of that. And even for your families, right? You have you're at least a chance of something that I, I spoke about today. You can look at that uh, in, in your families. But I want to walk through just, just, to, just to catch the forest again. Remember I talked about that in Romans, or Romans chapter 5, that just we need to see the forest, right? We, we need to see right, that, that Christ died while we we're still sinners. Christ died for us. We need to see the gospel message and sin and salvation and sanctification in Romans. And so likewise here, we just want to see the whole week. I thought, Will, your, your choice of a text just to read for us was perfect. Um, Matthew 11 really sets the stage for what's going to happen. We can think about Palm Sunday and think about all the, the glorious things that are going to happen. And yet, what happens? Very quickly after the triumphal, psalm, uh, triumphal entry on the donkey, things start going downhill fast. And there's conflict and there's fighting. And then eventually Jesus gives um, the woes. And then he knows he's done. He's talking about the future. And so just that that's a great thing there, denouncing the cities who were unrepentant. He did his mighty works. He did a lot of works in Jerusalem as well, and they were unrepentant. Here's Jesus coming as king coming in, and yet the people are unrepentant. And then by Sunday again, of course, there is resurrection and joy. But I want us to see that big picture, and I think it's going to come out as we, we just see these stories afresh. And what I want to do, a lot of you have heard these stories over and over. Uh, some of them I'm going to read, some I'm just going to refer to. I just want to let the Lord... Just help us to see them again afresh. So let's start with my first point, simply triumph. This is the triumphal entry. I want to read the first 11 verses. It says this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Okay, so, so Bethphage, the Mount of Olives. you got Jerusalem sitting down there. And then on the eastern side, southern side, eastern side, western side, eastern side. It's the eastern side. Near the wilderness, so kind of up there, and on the side there's the Mount of Olives. It sits, it sits just kind of up on a hill, maybe a couple hundred yards uh, down. You can see Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, and there the Bethphage was just before that. They've come right up here, the Mount of Olives. Jesus is thinking about entering into Jerusalem, and he tells his disciples this: Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you find a donkey tied with a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did justice. Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put 
on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed after him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus was no stranger to Jerusalem. He'd been there many times. Even as a young boy, we read um, in Luke chapter 2 when he went up to the Passover feast. And then he stayed in his father's house while his family went home. He was there at the age of 12. And presumably, according to the law, Exodus 23, he would have had to go every year. Or would have gotten to go every year to Jerusalem. And in his ministry, we know he's in Jerusalem, up in Judea, back down to Jerusalem. As he traveled all around, he was not a stranger to Jerusalem He traveled there many times. He could have entered Jerusalem as he did many other times before, on foot, walking into the city. But this time was different because Jesus wanted to put a special entrance on display to show his kingship. And so he entered Jerusalem in a manner that would say, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. So he went and he got this this donkey and rode in. Now, for America, this is pretty strange, right? I mean, we don't. We don't have kings riding on donkeys. When Donald Trump was installed as president of the United States, he didn't ride a donkey. He rode what, kids? In a limousine. Maybe Rolls-Royce decked out, bullet-clad sort of limousine. And then when he came, he took the oath of office. I do swear, solemnly swear, I will faithfully execute the office of president of the United States to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's what he promised to do when he came into um, Washington, D.C. That's how we inaugurate presidents. We don't parade him on a donkey. But according to the Scripture, that's how it is that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem. Verse 5 is a quote from Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And they knew, Israel knew, when they saw their king coming on a donkey, that was the Messiah. And the city got it. That's why the crowds were shouting in verse 9, Hosanna! To the son of David. Now, Hosanna, the Hebrew word, Hoshiana, Hoshan, to save us. Nah, please, please save us. That's what they're saying. They're saying, save us, Jesus. Save us to the son of David. Bless is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us, please, in the highest. You do that, please. So this is a, this is a call for redemption. This is a call for excitement, worshiping, anticipating the the bondage that, that Jesus would overthrow the tyranny of the Romans and bring freedom to the Jews at last. That's what they were hoping for. They were expecting. And all was well. The crowds were excited. He sensed their freedom coming. And now things turn sour. A little bit in context like Roman, or Hebrew, Matthew chapter 11. Here's the turning point coming in verse 12. Exposure. Now, By exposure, what what I mean is is simply this, is that Jesus exposing the false religious leaders of the day. Look at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of all who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Can you imagine the scene? I remember a decade ago, well over a decade, 15 years ago, I preached through this passage at Rock Valley Bible Church. And I went to the, the table with the children's notes, and there were still some 
some uh, uh, clipboards on here, and I took it, and I turned the table over, and I pushed and made a big noise. How many of you, some of you remember that? I, I pushed it over, and I know, Rich Garden, you remember that, because you were sitting right there where Dirk, you were, and the children's table at that time was in this uh, cafeteria, it was right here, and I, I pushed it, and you were in the second row, and the chairs kind of went back, and they hit you, and... Uh, Kind of, kind of got him, and I didn't realize how close it was. These clipboards are flying all over the place, and I just wanted to make a racket to make a point. I could have done it today, but I, I'm just telling the story because we could do that. And then it kind of the, the chairs hit Rich a little bit, and uh, then that week, Rich, what did you tell me? It was very funny. That was that was true. True story. <laughs> but just imagine it. There in the temple, status quo, and Jesus is disrupting the status quo. Is what all is about. Overturning the tables, driving people out, getting them out of the temple. Quoting from the Old Testament scripture: "My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers." And such words really exposed the false preachers, basically exposed what was happening in the temple. It was not pleasing to the Lord. This is not what God had desired. He didn't desire this to be a place of an emporium where there was selling and stuff going on. He wanted it to be about worship and worshiping the Lord. My house should be called the house of prayer. And really, it leads us to the natural question, right? What happens in this place? What happens in our lives? Are we worshiping Jesus as he would have us to worship him? Or would Jesus come and want to overturn a table here in our church? Or what about beyond our church? One of the things I've learned is that, noticed over the years, that people don't like it when you expose their sin. And Jesus here exposed their sin. They got upset and angry and and if you want, if you're in the process of exposing someone's sin, all you need to do is just expose it and then duck. Because you've got to watch out because venom is going to fly. If not fists, venom from their, their mouths. And, and here, Jesus was exposing the sins of the Pharisees and they didn't like it. They hated Jesus. Even though he's doing wonderful things, they were plotting to get after him. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So that, that very day when he's coming in to the temple and he's healing these people, but the, the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children still crying in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. So the kids are still crying this. And, and by the way, if you try to put things together, you see this entrance into the temple um, wasn't Sunday. It was probably the next day because I think Luke says it was already late when he came into the city and he retired. And so maybe it was the next day or maybe even the next day after that. We don't, we don't exactly know, but... They're still singing that praise, Hosanna in the highest, and the Pharisees are hating it, even though he's healing the, the lame and the blind. How hard is their heart, how appropriate it is, Matthew chapter 11. Woe to you, Jerusalem, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Here he was healing, and right before them they said, those kids, tell them to shut up. Don't let them worship you, saying that you are the Savior. And then Jesus 
then turns and shuts him down, basically, saying in verse let me just read verse 15. He right when the chief priest saw the wonderful things he did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and they said to him, do you not hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, yes, I do. But have you never read in the scriptures out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? It's the children that God has prepared praise from Psalm 8. It's appropriate, he says. This is right that the children are worshiping me. That's why it's so good for us to have some children here today. Children all the time here in a church body. It's, it's good for them to sing. But the Pharisees wanted the, the worship to stop. But it's right for us to sing the praises of Jesus. Even as we think about our culture that continually resists the Lord, we must press on. We must press on and worship Christ when it is appropriate. So my third point, right? We've seen the triumph, the... And the beginning of the exposure, there's also there the, the, the fig tree story. We're going to kind of skip over that, but that's continuing to expose who the, who the Jews were. But now we see opposition. And you can see the opposition. I'm going to skip forward to verse 23. It says, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And they said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, it doesn't take a lot to read into here what's, what's happening here is Jesus is disrupting the religious system. He is continuing throughout. He has spoken against these scribes and Pharisees of what they're doing, and uh, they don't like what he's doing. He says, well, listen, we are here. We're, we're owners of the temple. We're running the temple. We got this. What about you? And then Jesus masterfully um, confronts them. He turns the tables. He says, I'll ask you a question. You tell me the answer. By what authority I do these things? The baptism of John, verse 25, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discuss among themselves. Well, if we, if we say from heaven, he'll say, then why did you not believe him? If they say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they hold that John is a prophet. So they said to Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See, they want to remove Jesus, but they feared the crowds, but they couldn't quite do it. So the, here was just the first of questions to try to get and try to, try to trap Jesus. And, and so that was like their first punch. And then Jesus, in verse 33, takes a counterpunch at them. And, and I'm, I thought about skipping this parable, but I think this parable is so crucial because it so puts out the gospel. Here the parable, verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went away to another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to them, well, he will put those wretches to a miserable end and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits of their seasons. <laughs> Jesus said, you got it. Have you never read? In the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected became the very cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruits. 
And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And I love this story because it illustrates the gospel so well. It illustrates the kindness of God. It illustrates the wrath of God. And then the resolve of God, the kindness of God again to give the, the vineyard to others. I mean, God was kind to Israel. He, he gave them a vineyard. He gave them a nation. He gave them a land. He gave them the blessing all through Abraham. And they had a nation. And, and he was kind to them, sending prophets to them to teach them and to guide them in the right way. But as they told them the right way, you're going the wrong way. You've got to go the right way. They hated the prophets. And in fact, even it says in chapter 23, verse 30, how they killed the prophets. Stephen said, which one of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And then their venom came, right? And he was, he was stoned. The exception for the prophet to Israel was to experience a life of no persecution. Israel hated the prophets, hated the messengers of God. These were the tenants. These were the, um, the slaves that came that they were supposed to give the rent to or to pay back or to help. And they, they rejected them and they beat them and some of them, they, they killed them. Yet despite their great rebellion, God continued his patience, sending them more and more and more prophets. And the more prophets they sent, the more were led to slaughter. Finally, he sent his son thinking, well, they'll respect my son. And of course, you know what happened. They didn't respect his son. But it's interesting here, when Jesus told this parable, that's future. That's exactly what, what happened, is the son came and they, they killed the son. And then God handed over the vineyard to another, that is to the Gentiles, because it's to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And the Jews rejected it first, and then it comes into the Gentile. I mean, the, this so puts out the plan of God, Even there it speaks about when he comes. We can see that in Matthew 24 and 25, just about the return of Christ, the return of, of the owner. And that was the plan of God. Jesus says, this is the plan of God. Quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone which the builders reject has become the chief cornerstone. And by the way, that's the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. God is the one who orchestrated all these events to have the cornerstone rejected. And the meaning of this parable is not lost on the Pharisees. Look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Exactly right. He was talking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And since they couldn't arrest him because of the crowds, they sought another way. And, and the rest of chapter 22, beginning of verse 15, is this back and forth about these questions that they're giving to Jesus. And they're challenging Jesus. And in verse 15, it's the Pharisees, right, come along with the Herodians, these people who are involved in the government. And they ask this question about taxes, hoping to get him in trouble with Caesar, who demanded taxes, or with the Jews who hated paying taxes. And if he lands on one side or the other, at least someone's going to be against him and take him down. And Jesus marvelously answers so as to be safe from both sides. Answering the question and safe. Uh, the second question, right? They saw it like, like verse 15. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. The first question was the Herodians. second was the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. So can talk to the story about the, the, the wife who had all these husbands. And in the resurrection, who's it going to be? And Jesus says plainly, again, going back to the scriptures, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. God is able to get past it. They were hoping that Jesus would see the, the folly of the resurrection and he proved the resurrection from the very place that the Sadducees went. They only believed in the books of Moses. And we proved it from the book of Moses. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's living. He's alive. 
and so are the people. See, now he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And then an expert of the law came and asked him about the law, the greatest commandment, thinking maybe he's going to pick one of the ten and, and choose one above the other, but they're all the same. And he, of course, gets right down to our fighter verse this week. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is our God. The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the greatest commandment Jesus puts out there. And then he turns the question. He's in, after he, he got all those and he passed without a, uh, without a problem. And as verse 33 says, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus asked this question from Psalm 110 about the Christ. And, and they were so stumped, basically proving his divinity from Psalm 110, verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. So you just picture this, this, this boxing match. Or if Nathan were here, right, this fencing match, back and forth, back and forth. They're striking, he's counter-striking, he's counter back and forth, and, and he wins the day because they stop asking him questions. And I, I leave it to you to look at the details. There's so many details you could look at Matthew 22. But I just say this, know this, that there are people like that today who figured out the toughest questions to ask and are going to pick on Christians and ask them the toughest questions. Not because they're interested in the answer, but because they want to stump you and they want to get you in a, in a frazzle and they want to trip you up, make you look foolish, make you doubt your faith so that you fall away from Christ. So if someone's asking a question, I, I would encourage you even to think about in response to say, are you genuinely interested in the answer to that question or is that just a question you're throwing out there because you know that it's difficult to answer? That kind of like turns it on them to kind of get their motives and to see what they're asking about. And I just say, though, when people come, stand your ground. You may not be able to answer with all the wisdom of Christ, but you certainly, the Holy Spirit will help you in your weaknesses, and you certainly can pursue and desire answers because they're all answers. Any skeptic has asked questions. There are answers to questions. Sometimes the question is, we don't know. We've got to trust God. Like Abraham, he considers the body as good as dead. Rightly considering it, yet God has got a bigger promise, and so he trusted God. Sometimes that's the answer, but from a skeptic, that answer will never, will never work. But for us, it will. All right, fourth point. We've seen his triumph, and then he exposes these, these people, and they face opposition, and now he decries their hypocrisy. Chapter 23 is really all about hypocrisy. It's the heart of verses 1 through 12. When Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, here he is, this is a, a final punch, a final slam on the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They're the ones who in those days the, the preachers sat and others stood. Today we reverse that, but that was kind of, these are the ones who stand in the pulpits, you might say. And so do and observe whatever they tell you but not the works they do. In other words, right, a lot of things that they preach and say are, are, are good, but they're just not practicing it. They're just all talk and no action. He says they preach, but do not practice. Verse 4. They tap heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing even to move them with their finger, right? You need to do that, but of course I don't. They don't say that, but you need to do that, but they are not willing. They don't. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places of honor at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. 
But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And here we see hypocritical leaders who are saying one thing, but on the back end are doing something else, who love the places of honor, who love being seen as religious who love the titles, who love the greetings, who love the privileges, who love the the best seats, but are unwilling to do as Jesus did, to bow and wash the the feet of the saints. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus approached and talked about their hypocrisy. You can read about in 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 Matthew chapter 6. He's talking about giving. When you give, don't sound the trumpet and say, look at what I'm giving. Or when you're praying, don't stand up and say, oh, look at me, how righteous I am, and pray with one eye open, and then you kind of look and see who's looking at me, right? Who's praying? Or fasting, don't, don't look gloomy when you fast, but hide that. So pray in the inner room. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't, don't make a pretense for others. That's what Jesus called them to do. He says, those who are, do their deeds to be seen by men have already received their reward. But you seek the Heavenly Father and let Him repay you, Him who sees only in secret. And I just say this, nothing kills genuine religion more than hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the killer of genuine religion. And many parents have faltered down the road of hypocrisy to look really good at church and at home a different story. In fact, I remember one time... um, knowing somebody only in a public arena and uh, then dealing with some difficulties with a, a child. And uh, the, the child just turned on recording on the iPhone. And what was heard in the home is far different than I ever saw and experienced in public. Of course, because I'm the pastor, right? People say, Pastor, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't say that, right? But you play that game, kids will see right through that. Kids will see right through that. Hypocrisy will kill homes. Be honest and be real. Be confessing your sins. Let your kids see what you do, what you don't do, your, your lack. Because it killed these religious leaders, and, and they had woes upon them. Seven woes. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 25. 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Right? You're all clean on the outside, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Outside you're like whitewashed tombs. You look so nice, but on the inside you're corrupt. And this is where Christianity really frees us up because we don't have to be any different. The, the, The entrance requirement is that you confess that you're sick and I need help. And then here's, here's a challenging thing I, I thought of this week is that when Jesus then lamented over Jerusalem, verse 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And there he's just alluding to killing of the prophets. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, you've left your house desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's just his tears and his 
there's anguish for them. Let me tell you, when you see hypocrites, how do you respond? I was just thinking through my response. My response is oftentimes equally hypocritical. Like, oh, well, look at them. Can you believe that? (laughs) Look what's happening there. I can't believe it. Like, do they even see it? Like, do I even see what I'm, what I'm doing? And I, I just think, when you see hypocrites, it ought to break your heart. And I, t- I see oftentimes, I see a hypocrite, and I'm emboldened and empowered in pride. I have more pride. But it ought to cause us to be like Jesus, just to weep for them and to pray for them because they're so lost. Well, finally... Let's look at my, my last point here, and I just uh, call it future. I call it future. It did change. Sorry, forgot that. It used to be woes, but now it's hypocrisy. Yeah, my fourth point changed. Smart guy over here. He's going to college next year, Grand Canyon University, right? Okay, future. Here Jesus now is kind of done with the public persona, and now he's with his disciples and he's thinking about his future. He's thinking about his death. And he's trying to put things in order before he leaves. Isn't that the case, right? When someone's dying, they try to put things in order. They try to visit with people. They try to know people. They try to write their last letters. They put their will and testament and in order. And that, that's a little bit what Jesus is doing. He's saying, you know what, this is, this is going to happen. And uh, I, I find what I think is so interesting about this is the first three verses. First two verses. Jesus left the temple. He's going away with his disciples to point out the buildings of the temple. Um, and they came. the disciples came to point out the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, Do you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will be not left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I find it interesting that in the academic circles, archaeological academic circles, of which I am not in that circle like in any, in any shape or form, but I know enough to know that in those circles... There's a big debate about where exactly on the Temple Mount was the temple. And there are different theories about, well, I think the temple was here. Or someone thinks, I would think the temple was here. I think it was here. I think it was here. They don't know. Because there's been found zero archaeological evidence of any stone, of any temple that would give them a hint about where the wall might be. The whole temple was totally gone. Is that not what Jesus said? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And the temple was a big building to be totally thrown down. And I just say that that statement there ought to set, set your, your precipice, your vision to say that what he said came true about the future. And these other things you're going to talk about the future will equally come true as well. And I wish we had time to to talk about this, but we can't. Essentially what he says is things are going to get bad. They're going to get worse. You're going to get really bad. You're really bad. The false Christ are going to come. People are going to be deceiving. Lostness. People are going to grow, grow cold. There's going to be famine. There's going to be war. And it's going to be really bad. And then he says, verse 27, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be Wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. In other words, right, when Christ comes, everyone will see it and everyone will know. And after the tribulation of those days, verse 29, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. 
And all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. He'll send out his angels a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the heavens to one another. Right? Things are going to get bad, but Christ is going to come. He's going to resolve it all so we can trust in him. And his message is to be alert, stay awake. Chapter 24, verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know on the day in which the Lord is coming. 44, therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Verse 46, blessed is that servant who his master will find so doing when he comes. Chapter 25, verse 13, watch therefore for you neither know the day nor the hour. In other words, he's going to come. He's going to come when you don't expect it. So be ready. Be about doing God's will. Be about following him because there's this future day when he's going to come back and restore everything to right. And so he wraps that up to his disciples. Verse 20, chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And so then here, just got a couple more days. They're going to prepare for the Passover, and then we're going to hit the Passover on Friday. And we're going to celebrate the Passover. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper from these words, verse 26 and following. But it's appropriate today, as we've been doing this every week, six, six weeks leading up to Easter to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. And then we'll do it again Friday in anticipation for Easter. But it is really interesting. I, I, I feel like, like the end of, of Monday through Thursday... Sunday through Thursday, ends with Jesus even talking about just the, the future time. I'm coming. I'm coming. And that is the very purpose for the Lord's Supper. You can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is where Paul speaks about the, the Lord's Supper um, and gives some instructions about that. But it says in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And there's really a great application there, just with uh, Matthew 24 and 25, speaking about future events, and Jesus says, it's going to be bad, but I'm going to come, therefore be ready. He says we need to be ready, and one of the ways that we profess our readiness is to say, Christ, you've told us to remember you in this way, and we're remembering you by eating bread and drinking from the fruit of the vine, and it represents your body, as it represents blood, and just a way to say that we are proclaiming your death until he comes. And so by taking those elements, basically says, I'm, I'm waiting for Christ. I'm waiting for him to come. I'm trusting in him, and I know that he is the one that I'm looking for. I'm waiting for, I'm seeking to walk in his way so that when he comes, he's going to find me doing his business and, and bearing fruit in, in love towards him. That's Jesus' message, and that's really the purpose of the Lord's Supper. One of them is that we proclaim his death until he comes. Don't we bow our heads? Just this is a, is a good chance to examine yourselves. Just examine yourself, examine your heart. Just think even about Holy Week and what it means for everything for you. Just even think about taking up this challenge. It's not a hard challenge. Ten minutes a day reading through just the, the gospel account together. It might make a big impact in our lives. Just again as we hear Christ and what he did, opposition he faced, how unworthy Jerusalem was, and really how unworthy we are apart from the blood of
of Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you would bless our time right now as we think one more time, six weeks in a row, God, again, of the, of the sacrifice of Christ. May we never tire of looking at the wonders of the cross of Jesus. In his name we pray.